leadership comes in many forms and it doesn't have to be stern you don't have to do it one way all the time like you can kind of mold your leadership skills around the situation welcome to building teams with matt nunn as a coach and as a leader of 150 people, Matt loves to build and lead strong teams. From CEOs to professional athletes, join him as he has honest, candid conversations about how to cultivate strong teams. Proudly presented by Nun Media, Australia's largest media buying agency. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I'm Matt Nunn. On today's episode of Building Teams, I'll be speaking with Connor Scott. Connor is a physiotherapist and one of the founders of the Zoop Network. Zoop was created by four mates during the 2020 lockdown and aims to positively impact mental health by normalizing vulnerability and helping people engage in their self-care. Through their many challenges and events, Zoop has raised tens of thousands of dollars to help curb the trend of the mental health epidemic. When Connor's not immersing himself in cold water to raise money for charity, you may find him awake in the early hours supporting his favourite football team, Liverpool. Welcome, Connor. Thanks, Ray. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Obviously, you weren't born in Australia by that accent. Can you tell us like the surroundings you know, of your upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. I moved to Australia when I was 13. I grew up in Liverpool in the UK. Which is a pretty rough area, is that right? Or Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say it was a wealthy place to live. We kind of struggled financially through there and my parents made a pretty big decision. They'd never been to Australia before and just took a punt to come out here and create opportunities for us kids and get us out of that situation. And it's, it's worked out pretty well, I would say. What was the situation over in Liverpool? You know, I think it's a little bit renowned to be a, a, a rough area. You know, some of the people you grew up with, you know, where are they today? Mate, people I've played football or soccer with, you know, I've got a few of those, those people that are in prison. <laughs> you know, it's a tough place to grow up. The people there are incredible. For the hardships that they go through and the adversities that they go through, they are just wonderful people and they get through it with humor and kindness. But every day is a slog for them. You know, every day is make ends meet, try and put food on the table. It's a tough place to live, but they make the most of the opportunities that they do have. So how did you, a a boy from Liverpool, end up being a physiotherapist, founder of the Zoop Network in Australia? Yeah, it's interesting. My parents always like instilled the importance of education. So my dad dropped out of school when he was 15. My mum kind of finished uni when she was in her 30s. They gave me every opportunity I could. So I actually went to a private school in Liverpool. My dad would make me every single night. I'd do two, three hours of homework. I wasn't allowed to do anything on the weekend until all my schoolwork was done. And that got me a scholarship to, to, go to, to go to this school on a sports and academic scholarship. They just gave me every single opportunity I could possibly have. And even moving to Australia, they wrote a letter to McKinnon Secondary College. The kid across the road from me couldn't get in because he was out of the zone for that school. But they went for meetings. They did everything and got me into that school. I wanted to be a professional football player. That was always the dream. And I quickly realized I wasn't very good. My uncle was a professional football player. And at his best mate's wedding, he had Wayne Rooney, David Beckham, all these players there because he was the England and Manchester United physio. And I thought to myself, well, if I can't play, I might as well treat him. So since I was 11, that's, that's been the, the dream was to be a physio. In 2019, your life looked quite different to your life today. Could you tell me about the Zoop Network and what led to the launch of it? Yeah. So towards the end of 2018, my parents finally separated. After a rough couple of years, my auntie, who was like a best mate to me, she passed away from alcohol-induced liver disease and she was 42 years of age. It's a bit weird. My dad's brother married my mum's sister. So we were a very close-knit group. 
And then I've been in a relationship for probably four years. And after Claire passed away, two weeks later, that broke down. I'd been kind of this kid who'd always been successful, played high-level sport, got into physio, did well academically. And it was the first time that I realized I didn't really have any coping mechanisms for when it goes wrong. And I spiraled. I didn't want to come across like this guy who wasn't succeeding. That's all I'd done. So I felt ashamed of the fact that there was thoughts and there was feelings going on that I didn't quite understand. The courage to speak up about it became like an anxious thought in itself. And it was hard to do. And for me, I was like, well, I'm, I'm sick of being this burden and not being happy. And I just feel, I just felt like happiness wasn't, wasn't quite attainable. And I, at that point, attempted to take my own life. Thanks for sharing because that's obviously pretty tough stuff to talk about. Just honing on that a little bit and going backwards, were you somebody that had those thoughts prior to those, you know, three or four events at once coming into COVID or, or how would you describe your mental health prior to that? I didn't have any problems or, or so I thought. The way I dealt with any adversity was to kind of bury it yeah. and just Put on a brave face. And that's what people from Liverpool do. You know, you go through every day through a slog, but there's no excuse not to be funny and there's no excuse not to be not to be kind. I'd kind of suppressed a lot of the feelings of stuff going on at home and dealing with looking after my siblings' well-being when things weren't quite right at home. I think when those couple of events happened so close to each other, it was like I'd shoved so much under the rug that it just overflowed and I didn't I didn't quite know how to handle that level of emotion. It has turned into a positive from your ability to perhaps, you know, talk to other people. But obviously, from a Zoop Network standpoint, how has that affected your life and your mental health moving forward? It's been huge. So I remember just a couple of days after after that attempt, I called my mate, uh, my best mate, Jerome, just to tell him about it because I had to get it off my chest. And he created this idea of keeping me accountable by doing like well-being practices. And it just started with run three times a week. And if you don't run, you owe me $50. And if I don't run, <laughs> I owe you $50. And every Friday, we'll just have a phone call and check in on how the running's going. And that's all it was. We didn't talk about anything else. It was just the running. But as those conversations kept going, it became more and more about how you're actually doing and kind of gave me a platform to talk about it. And then we ended up doing it with 10 of our mates. And then there was 20. And then there was 100 people doing it. It catapulted my confidence, catapulted my confidence, A, into going and getting support that I actually needed. and B laying a foundation for the well-being practices that really do make an, an impact on your mental health. So it's, it's been incredible. So the initial challenge, the challenge is to keep your mind occupied off other thoughts going through your head, but that turned into a bigger challenge. Yeah. So what we did is we, we, I'd have three runs to do a week and we'd have to send a photo receipt. So you couldn't lie. So you had to send that photo. And if you didn't send a photo, then it classified as you didn't do it. So it started with that and then it became a little bit more, okay, we'll do meditation and then we'll learn a new skill. We'll learn a new language. Like it was just all different types of yeah. types of challenges. And then it started with cold showers. I hate cold water. It was like cold showers in the morning. And then now we do challenges where we jump in the bay for the month of August. We pick the coldest month for nine minutes to raise awareness for the nine lives lost to suicide every day. So these challenges have just gotten a little bit wilder and wilder, but now they've got a great cause behind them too. I've spoken to a couple of basketball coaches and professional athletes on this podcast, but I'm really interested in your perspective on teams and what you've learned when traveling with them as their physio. And obviously, you were the physio of the under-20 Victorian state team and came away with us the last couple of years. So I'd imagine you're obviously, you know, you've worked with the likes of a Josh Giddy, a Dyson Daniels. 
some guys that recently been drafted in the NBA. Players also can be quite vulnerable. And we find sometimes they actually open up to the physio more than the coaches at times. And we'd come to you about, well, where's this guy at? Which was a great help. So what do you think it takes, I guess, based on your experience to lead a great sporting team? I think it takes a lot. There's no one way to do it. And like you said, the vulnerability of the players with me, it's like I'm that middleman. They see me every day. I'm taking them for walks. They're on the treatment table. It gets pretty mundane talking, uh, how are you feeling today, mate? Like, And that's my favorite part is when they start to open up. But in terms of what it takes to lead a great sporting team, I think authenticity and awareness of what's going on around you is key. And that comes from everyone a part of that, you know, the team manager, the coach, the physio, the assistant coaches. It's a teamwork. It's a communication standpoint. And know where you stand within the team. Like for my, my role, I felt as if I was a leader in my role. So I had to lead by example. I had to be authentic with these boys because as soon as you're not authentic, they sniff it. They sniff if you're just there for the badge or you're just there to kind of get paid. They know when you care and they know when you're being inauthentic. And for me, it was being authentic and being aware of is their body and is their mind right and noticing noticing that, but also being aware of myself. Like I've got to notice when I'm not quite right. Notice when maybe I'm missing things if I'm not quite mentally on. Being able to manage that with the players is something something I think is is key to leading a great team. What's the funniest thing you've heard from a player? I know you've dealt with some characters. Uh, there's people like Josh Duash who just made me, he tickled me every single day. He came in with just these one-liners that were just unbelievable. But then you hear the dating world, like who's this player dating? And they're, they're telling each other the, each other's secrets and you go, <laughs> you go, no, he's one for the ladies or, you know, he's, he's doing this. Obviously, and he's messaging this girl from, from this team and kind of keep an eye on how he acts around this person. Like it's just, it's just great because then you get this little insight into what's going through because they, they're young kids, they're 18, 19. You get to see a little bit of who they are, not just the basketball player that they are. So have you learned any great leadership lessons from your time behind the scenes as a physio? Is there any advice that you could pass on? Yeah, so I think leadership lessons, and I'll speak about you here because there's, there's something I learned from you which was fantastic, which I think you and I communicated very well throughout those couple of years and always being honest with each other. There was a moment where the players are a bit scared. You know, the, the head coach, they've got, to, they've got to respect the coach and that's, that's a relationship you've got to have. And there was a moment where we were playing against ACT one of their players or one of their mates had actually took their life earlier that day. And I remember you pulled the team in. We lost narrowly due to a few dodgy decisions, but that might be a bit biased. And you pulled the team in and it was a big game and lost by a point or two. And you just said to them, boys, we've just lost a basketball game, but they've just lost a mate. We're playing this sport and basketball is just not important compared to the friendships and the family that we've created here. That was vulnerable from you, and that was a showcase that no matter how much respect you have for the person that's in charge, that vulnerability hit home with those boys. Seeing those boys go around to every single player and give them a hug after the game and just say, I'm thinking of you, mate. It was just a, a moment that leadership comes in many forms, and it doesn't have to be stand. You don't have to do it one way all the time. Like You can kind of mold your leadership skills around the situation. Yeah. Now it was a difficult thing to see the the you know I remember looking looking around and the ACT just come from 16 behind in the last few minutes and unfortunately beat us but you know they were crying at the end of the game and it's when we found out what had happened it was very um 
I think everybody felt a lot of empathy towards them actually playing against us in that game. It was more than sport, yeah. I think, at that point. It was more than competition. To see all the boys talking, giving each other a hug, giving the coaches a hug, all the staff, the the, the game didn't matter. It was just about the, the human connection. And it, I'll hold that close to me seeing that. It was incredible. You're clearly very passionate about well-being. Do you have any advice for people that may be wanting to foster greater well-being practices within their workplaces? Firstly, I think well-being practices have got to start from the top down. I think if you're a leader and you're running you know, your own business, we can try and implement workplace practices from the bottom up. I kind of see that as we're trying to kind of save people from drowning without stopping the person that's pushing them in. I think if we can role model that, starting from the top down, we, we are, we're a product of our, our environment. Working with my life coach, something I do when I'm creating a well-being practice or a habit, there's two things. Firstly, start ridiculously small. So if I want to do gratitude practice, if I want to meditate, I just set a goal of one minute or one thing. A lot of people will feel this. You go, I want to run a marathon. And then you run two kilometers and go, oh, there's no chance I'm doing that. It's to, it, you, you set that goal so far ahead that you're kind of like, oh, like that, I can't reach it. If you set yourself a, a goal of you're going to run for one minute a day, if you run for five minutes, you've absolutely smashed it. Whereas if you're setting yourself, I want to run 10K a day and you only run 1K, you feel like you failed. So that's where I tie in the kind of the minimal absolute must as well. For every day, I just have a minimum. I have to do these things. I have to do one thing I'm grateful for. I have to do one minute of meditation. I have to do one minute of exercise. I would usually do a hell of a lot more than that. But if I look back on my day, then I've seen that I've actually smashed the goals I've set. That's good advice. The core goal of the Zoop network is to normalize vulnerability. Can that be done within a workplace setting? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And vulnerability comes in many forms. Vulnerability could be discussing a time that maybe you failed. I know I've had this experience being in charge at my physio practice is sometimes some of the new grads kind of don't do so well with a patient and it's pulling them aside to go, hey, mate, you know, in my first year, I stuffed up here, I stuffed up here, I stuffed up here. That's vulnerability. It doesn't mean that you have to go in and tell everyone your deepest and darkest secrets. It just means that you've got to be real. You're not perfect. And being honest by, honest with that, I absolutely think it's, it's possible in workplaces. Have you ever had a failure that seemed catastrophic at the time, but looking back delivered you a great advantage? Mate, I fail every single day. Every single day I fail. And I kind of look to fail. If I fail, I learn. So it's not like a win-lose, it's a win-learn. I guess taking you back to 2019, 2020, I felt like a huge failure. I felt like I wasn't making my family proud. I feel like I couldn't be the best partner. I couldn't be the best friend. I couldn't be the best physio. I felt like I was failing every day catastrophically. When my auntie passed away, I remember that the last time I saw her, like she had an alcohol problem and we went out for a drink. And I think to myself, that's a failure. I didn't have the courage to, to say no to doing that. So that fills you with shame and guilt. But what I've learned from those experiences that I, I just wouldn't do it again. Like, so the next time that that situation comes up, I'm prepared. I'm prepared to, if my mental health's going a little bit downhill, because we're always on that spectrum. I've got my strategies. I know what to go back to. I know what those signs look like. I know if someone close to me had an alcohol problem, I know this, the signs and I know what I would do next. I think everything I do daily and whatever I fail at, I hope to do better and just take that next situation that comes and treat it with the learnings I've taken from the last failure. So being a leader in the mental health space and coming from where you've come from, what's next for the Zoop Network? You know, if you could solve a problem, what would that be? 
it's multifaceted. I think we've got to start, we've got to get people talking about their problems and talking about mental health without the stigma. It's kind of like physical health. If you did your ACL and you kind of identified yourself as like an ACL injury, it doesn't make sense. When we've got mental health, we have this negative stigma. We we associate the words and the connotations with depression, anxiety, PTSD, whatever it might be. Whereas if we define physical health as ACL to hamstring to, it doesn't make sense. We don't talk about it that way. Mental health is a spectrum. With what we're doing, we're running workshops to talk about this stuff, to talk about the fact that mental health is just a normal part of everyday life. And we've all got it. We're just on a spectrum of it from healthy to coping, to difficulty, to illness. Like we're just somewhere on that spectrum and we're going to fluctuate. In terms of what I would like to see, I think mental health needs to be, and well-being practices, I'd love to have learned this in school. And I think if we can start to get this conversation started through a curriculum that is initiated through school, we're going to have a lot more emotionally intelligent people. I think we're so focused on IQ instead of EQ. And I think EQ is what gets you places and IQ is just a number. So emotional intelligence, emotional literacy through schools as a, as a starting point. If somebody's listening out there that perhaps is in a state possibly that you were some time ago, how can they break out or, or make that initial step to come out of that and you know use some of the medicine that you've described as talking about it? What should they do? What should be their next step? Obviously, I'm not a medical professional in the sense of a psychologist, but you've always got services. You've got Lifeline 131114 that are available 24-7, volunteers that will always listen. So you've always got someone that's going to listen. No one is alone because you've always got that support. I think for me, what I found beneficial was like sitting across from someone looking into their eyes, telling them my problems. I I still can't do that. That's something I don't find very comfortable. If I was to go for a walk with someone or if I was going to go for a drive where I don't have to make that eye contact and I can just kind of talk away from them, I found that really helpful. The other thing is the person listening is a key component because there's a statistic out there that you know a large portion of people regret reaching out because people aren't sure how to hold that space. And I think the importance of listening and active listening and not giving advice, but just saying, hey, man, that, that actually, that really sucks that, that you're going through that. But if there's anything that I can do, please reach out. I think we're very quick to go, oh, you need to see a psychologist or you need to just go for a walk every day. You just need to get out of bed. Like someone going through that doesn't want to hear it. They just want to know that they're supported. And if they've got a problem, that they've got someone that will listen to them. That's the advice I would give. Reach out to those people that you, you know are going to kind of listen and support you. And if you are struggling, you've got services like Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Headspace that will always listen. On the flip side of that, you mentioned your friend, I think it was Jerome. And once again, if there's anybody listening, if you are a friend of somebody that is struggling, what would be your advice to them? Well, what Jerome did for me, which was incredible, the first thing he did was listen. He said to me, he's like, look, mate, I've been noticing from afar really what's what's happening and I haven't quite known how to approach it. He's like, but I have noticed like something I've known about you for years is that you love to run. Like I know that you love running. Your friends sometimes know you more than your family. You spend a lot more time once you get out of school and uni with your mates than you do with your family. And he, he said, I've just noticed that you haven't been doing that. So that's what we're going to do. So let's just, do, let, let's just go for runs. I know you love it. You haven't been doing it. So that's how we're going to start this conversation. And it didn't happen in the first week or the second or the third, but it was six, seven, eight weeks down the track that I kind of became comfortable with this idea of just checking in on runs that was like, actually, mate, I missed that run on Thursday because I was not doing well at all. I couldn't get out of bed and this is why. 
so yeah, just I just knew he was there. He didn't ask me anything. He didn't pry. He was just like, how are you doing today? And I'd say that typical, yeah, good. But when it started changing into why didn't you run or why haven't you done your goals this week, it wasn't a how you going, yeah, good. It was actually I didn't do that because of ABCD. It kind of gave me the floor to talk about something else because like that question, are you okay, makes me like, you know, close off inside because I, I don't really want to talk about it. But if you're going to ask me, hey, I've noticed that you didn't get in the water today when we usually go at 6 a.m., then I'll be like, look, boys, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm run down. This is happening. It gives it gives the floor to actually talk about it. If there's anybody out there that wanted to perhaps help donate or help the Zoop Network and the work that you do, how can they do that? You can follow us on Instagram at the Zoop Network. With this money, we're raising money for Batia. So Batia are a for-purpose mental health organization run by young people for young people. So they do Batia at school programs, Batia at uni programs, and it's all about giving school kids mental health toolkits. So last year, we raised 36 grand, which gave 1,450 students a mental health toolkit. This year, we're looking to, to give 3,000 kids that opportunity. So if you want to find out more about that, you can go to 9for9.com.au or check out Batia. Yeah, and to see the work that they do too. Okay, uh, it's now time for the buzzer beaters. If you were going to get a tattoo of your life's motto, what would it say? Do happy. Favorite self care practice? Gratitude and reflective journaling. What's your go to pub meal order? I don't know why I even look at the menu sometimes, but it's a chicken parma. <laughs> What's something you're grateful for today? Oh, so much this interview with you. It's a sunshine, the sunshine outside. Went for a swim this morning, had a coffee. It's been beautiful. Terminology, soccer or football? It's football. You use your feet. Don't use your hands to run and bounce a Come ball. Come on, mate, it's soccer. <laughs> oh, it's not. Yeah, I just don't understand it. Don't understand. You use your hands. I don't get it. <laughs> okay, mate. Thanks so much for joining me. I think uh, everybody get a lot out of that. Appreciate your time. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Building Teams podcast. For more information about Nat and Nun Media, visit nunmedia.com.au. Follow the show for future episodes and leaving a review or rating helps others find the podcast. 